If you would, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Colossians uh, chapter 1 as we continue on this morning, or excuse me, this evening in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Tonight we'll be in uh, verses 21 through 23. We saw a few weeks ago the glory of Christ in uh, verses 15 through through 20, and now uh, here in uh, these verses, we see uh, the work of Christ, what, what he has done. And so uh, Paul writes to us under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, what we find here simply is that Paul lays out for these Christians their past condition, what they were like apart from God, He lays out for them their present reality, now in Christ. And then thirdly, the necessity of their perseverance in the faith. And so it's under those three headings that we'll be considering these verses. One, our past condition. Two, our present reality. And then three, the necessity of perseverance. Past condition, present reality, the necessity of perseverance. And so first Paul speaks of the past condition. And you notice the particularity with which he speaks here. He says not merely and generally we, but he speaks pointedly to them. He says you. And the you is equally applicable to all of us here who are Christians. That is to say, we have a past, you have a past. And that past is not pretty. Look at how Paul describes it here. He says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Three aspects of the past. Alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Before you knew Christ, you were alienated. Alienated from whom? Alienated from what? Well, first and foremost, alienated from God. Paul described the condition of the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.18 as being excluded from the life of God. And being alienated from God, you were likewise alienated from the good blessings of God. You were without hope and without God in the world, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. You were alienated. There was a big division between you and God and between you and the good things of God, the the blessings which God gives to his people. And as we see Paul's further characterization of the past, we see that this alienation was not merely an amicable parting of the ways. It's not as if two parties were agreeing to disagree, agreeing to, to walk separately. Far from it, there was also hostility. Paul says there was hostility in mind. You were hostile in mind, not merely that you were indifferent to God and didn't care about him, but hostile 
at enmity. Now, it's been said that those who are friends like and dislike the same things. You and your friends like the same football team, or you like whatever it is that uh, friends can agree on, and you disagree with what you dislike. Maybe you dislike similar political things or uh, similar things about, uh, about your past. You grew up having to eat your vegetables, your greens, or whatever, and you're like, yeah, I don't like that. And somebody else says, yeah, I don't like that either. And you're like, oh, well, you'll be my friend. They like and dislike the same things. But that enemies like and dislike contrary things. Just think, for instance, of nations that are at war with each other. One nation wants its independence. The other nation does not want that nation to have its independence. They like and dislike contrary things. It's also been said that an enemy is one whose will is opposed to the will of another in all things. And that was you. That was me at one time in relation to God. And the scriptures bear witness to this in particular ways. And so we find, for instance, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In our natural conditions, we don't accept the truth of God, the truth which comes from the Spirit. We didn't understand. Our minds were ignorant, not only ignorant, but also hostile to the things of God. Likewise, we find this in Romans 8, 5 through 7, that those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And according to our Lord Jesus Christ, this Hostility and enmity is also personal. That is to say, it's personally directed against the Lord and against his Christ. Not only is the enmity conceptual, in the sense of us being at enmity and hostile to the law of God and refusing to accept it and refusing to obey God's precepts, there's also a personal animus, a personal pointedness to this enmity. So Jesus says in John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hates you. Christians have the hostility of the world because the world is hostile to Jesus. He says in John 15, 24, But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. There's hostility in mind, not only to the law of God, but toward God himself and toward Christ himself. And so you, likewise, were alienated, separated from God. You were hostile in mind, not only rejecting the commandments of God, but also hating him. And thirdly, Paul says there in verse 21 that we were engaged in evil deeds. What else could we expect, given the points from which we were started? Being alienated from God and his blessings, being hostile in our minds toward him, his word, his will, his ways. What else could we expect but that we would be engaged in evil deeds. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, 18 and 19, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, evil deeds are the natural outflow of hearts that are alienated from God 
and that are hostile in mind toward him. And evil deeds are of various types. That They run the gamut. As John Davenant expressed it, if the mind shrinks from adultery, murder, drunkenness, and the like, yet it is full of pride, infidelity, vanity, and many other spiritual sins, which for the most part are more culpable, although carnal vices are more infamous. Evil deeds run the gamut. Some people wear it on their shirt sleeves, so to speak. Some people keep it hidden in the heart and the mind pretty well. But evil deeds run the gamut. And so, Christian, this is who you were. Now, world history as we know it is traditionally kept track of, at least in the West, divided up into, into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., and Domini, the year of our Lord. Now, unfortunately, there's been a move on the part of some to try to change that to B.C.E., before the Common Era and Common Era. I would say before the Christian Era and Christian Era, if you want to go that way. But be that as it may, it is not only the history of the world that can be divided up into B.C. and A.D., but the life of every Christian also can be divided up into those eras, the B.C. era and the A.D. era. Verse 21 is the B.C. era of every Christian. And moreover, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, verse 21 is still you. If you've not been reconciled to God through the mediator, through Jesus Christ, then you're still here. You're still alienated, still hostile in mind, still engaged in evil deeds. And as, as it is, the wrath of God still abides on you. And it will continue to abide on you forever if you do not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only Christ can reconcile you to God. Only Christ can atone for your sins. And we'll see that as we, as we move ahead. So we've seen the, the past condition. Now let's come to the second point, which is the present reality. And we see that there in verse 22. Having shown the Christians the B.C. era of their lives, Paul now moves to show them their present reality, who they are in Christ. This is the A.D. era of every Christian. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. To state what should be obvious, the difference between the B.C. and A.D. eras in the life of any Christian is Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes the difference. He is the one who fixes the problems that we have made. Where you were once alienated and hostile to God, Jesus has now reconciled you to God. To be reconciled is to be brought from that condition of of enmity to terms of friendship, to go from that condition to hating what God loves and loving what God hates to now being reconciled, you love what God loves. You hate what God hates. This is what reconciliation is. We are drawn now into fellowship and communion with God. And this is the terms in which Paul described his apostolic ministry in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, where he said that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ given us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation is what Jesus does and the proclamation of the gospel is the proclamation of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling men to himself by the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus has now reconciled us to God. And you'll notice there in the verse that he has done so in a particular way. In his fleshly body 
through death, and he has done this for a particular purpose, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now let's look at these two things. First, the particular way of this reconciliation, and then secondly, the particular purpose of this reconciliation. The particular way in which Jesus has reconciled us to God is in his fleshly body through death. The Son of God became an incarnate man with a true human body, true human soul. And when Paul speaks here of Christ's fleshly body, he means it in the sense of a true human body. And I think this is important for us to to grasp because when we see the word flesh in the New Testament, we need to try to make sense of the context in order to understand what's actually being conveyed because uh, flesh can be used in the New Testament in different ways. It can sometimes refer to what we refer to as the, the sinful nature or the, the old man or the infection of, of nature. In that sense, we have Galatians 5.17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you do not do the things you please. But here, that is not Paul's sense at all. When Paul speaks here of Christ's fleshly body, he means it in the sense of flesh, flesh and blood. Skin and bones, muscle, sinews, and so forth. In the sense of John 1.14, the word became flesh. Because as the sinless son of God, Jesus Christ had no flesh in the sense of the old man or the corruption of nature. Jesus had no corruption. He himself was sinless. But he did have a true physical human body. And it was by means of that body, that fleshly body, that he has reconciled us to God. And he did so through his death on the cross in which he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. As First Peter 2.24 tells us. And so Christian believer, Jesus Christ has reconciled you to God. He has died for you. And Jesus has died for you and reconciled you for a particular purpose. Namely this. See the end of the verse. That he may present you before him, that is before God the Father, holy and blameless, and beyond reproach. Because of Christ's work for us, all of us who are in him are now blameless and beyond reproach. Christ has taken the guilt and stain of our sins away. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Christ has died for his church so that he might present her to himself In all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, as we find in Ephesians 5.27. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. We are justified, counted as righteous, because Jesus' righteousness is credited to us because we are united to him through faith. And so Jesus presents us blameless and beyond reproach, and he also presents us as holy before God. Now, by definition, All who belong to Christ are holy because we've been separated from the world and unto God. We've been set apart from the world for God and his purposes. And then we are to be growing in that holiness day by day throughout our Christian lives. Far be it from you and far be it from me to suppose that Christ has died for sinners so that we may now sin with impunity. The man or woman who thinks or behaves in that way is in a very dangerous position indeed. On the contrary, Peter says he himself bore our sins in his 
own body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. The healing is not merely that our sins are forgiven, but also so that we might live unto righteousness and die to sin. Whereas Paul would say in Romans 6, 1 and 2, are we to continue in sin so the grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Christ died for this purpose, to reconcile us to God and present us to him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. As the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale said it, let us not frustrate the intentions of so good and merciful a Lord. Now certainly we stumble as Christians. We all sin daily in a multitude of ways. But the mark of a Christian is his intention and his attitude. A Christian turns from sin. A Christian repents of it. A Christian doesn't wallow in it, revel in it, set his mind on it, or pursue it. Those who are Christians now are to be working with Christ in this grand design of our redemption. Obviously, we don't save ourselves, but nevertheless, we don't fight against Christ's purposes in our reconciliation. He reconciled us so that we might be holy. Therefore, we must strive to be holy. This is our present condition, that Christ has reconciled us in his fleshly body through death to present us to God the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So we've seen our past condition, we've seen the present reality for those who are in Christ, and now we come to the third point, which is the necessity of perseverance, and we find this in the words of verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, here we need to notice a condition involved. This reconciliation, this presentation of us to God in holiness and blamelessness and without reproach is conditioned on continuing in the faith, being firmly established and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Our text allows me to put it like this. If you do not continue in the faith, if you actually move away from the hope of the gospel, then verse 22 does not apply to you. Now, it is not the case that verse 22 did once apply to you, and then it stopped as soon as you stopped professing or stopped continuing in the faith. It's not that you had salvation and had reconciliation, had holiness, had blamelessness, and so on, and then lost it when you moved away from the hope of the gospel. If you do not continue in the faith, and if you do move away from the hope of the gospel, it becomes clear that you never had saving faith in the first place, which is why John says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. First John 2.19. Tertullian in the ancient church put it this way. He said, They are neither to be regarded as prudent or faithful, whom heresies have been able to draw aside. He is no true Christian unless he perseveres even unto the end. And I realize that this truth is a bit uncomfortable, or at least maybe uncomfortable, but it is truth nevertheless. And thus we are warned again and again in the scriptures of our great need to persevere in the faith. Jesus spoke about it in the the parable of the sower. 
with seeds that fell on different types of soil. Some of the soil upon which the seeds fell was rocky soil. The seeds there sprouted up. Jesus said, this represents those who received the word with joy, but they had no firm root in themselves and were temporary. And when affliction or persecution arose because of the word, they fell away. Likewise, Jesus said that some of the seed fell among the thorns. Those people heard the word, but it was eventually choked out by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the the desires for other things. Those entered in and choked the word, and it became unfruitful. We see real-life examples of it in the New Testament history. In the case of Simon the Sorcerer, Acts chapter 8. Seemingly also the case of Demas, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our Lord Jesus never did say, the one who professes faith will be saved. But he did rather say, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Mark 13, 13. Likewise, we find in Hebrews 3, 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, it is a cause for grief and sadness that we live in a time where many who had once professed faith in Christ have fallen away. We live in a time where many, who by outward appearance at least, had seemed to be reconciled to God in the fleshly body of Christ through his death, have not continued in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. They have moved away from the hope of the gospel. And the common parlance of our day sometimes this is called deconstruction we see sometimes some people who have so fallen uh, take to themselves the name ex-evangelicals once upon a time they were evangelicals now having moved away they refer to themselves as ex-evangelicals some of these are famous and have big platforms some of them are not famous at all and have little or no platform but this stuff is in the air You can find it on the internet, you can find it on social media, you can find it in your interactions with other people perhaps, and every story obviously is going to have its own nuances. Sometimes they'll talk about religious trauma, being hurt by the church, or having been under abusive leadership. I realize those things can be real, right? There can be. Uh, There can be real hurt caused by the church. There can be real abuse by those in leadership. I uh, would not uh, say that those things cannot be. Obviously they can be. Sometimes there are cultural pressures that are involved. The LGBT plus agenda and its demands for total acceptance of the lifestyle choices of its adherents, coupled with the recognition that biblical Christianity says no to those demands. Sometimes, no doubt, the biggest issue involved is not trauma, is not the prevailing winds of the culture, but an actual struggle over the fundamental articles of the Christian faith. Is there a God who has made us? Has he spoken to us in his word? Does this God have an only begotten son named Jesus who came into the world as a man and died for sins to make an atonement for us and rose again on the third day? Are these things true? And for various reasons, some who once professed to believe these things now proclaim that they do not. And as I said, this is cause for grief and sadness. This is no cause at all for anyone to boast or to gloat as if by our own strength any one of us can by ourselves hold fast to Christ. Our only hope is Christ. That is to say our only hope is Christ hanging on to us so that we may continue in the faith, continue hanging on to him, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. 
And given the unsettled nature of our times in this regard, I, I think a due exhortation to perseverance in Christ is in order. I am well aware that there are many objections to the Christian faith in the world. I am well aware that sometimes there are objections to the Christian faith in the heart of a Christian. I myself have had them at times. Maybe you have too. You'll find uh, figures in church history, men like J. Gresham Machen, Francis Schaeffer, who have at times passed through uh, times where their faith was, was really tested. And for a moment, it seemed kind of up in the air which way, which way they were going to go. Not all Christians have to pass through that kind of trial, but some do. I don't claim that I can answer all of the questions and objections that one might have. I don't claim to be the greatest Christian apologist out there. I might be able to answer some questions, but maybe not all. And I don't think that the remainder of our time can be an apologetic tour de force. I don't think that's what we're up for in a Sunday evening sermon. But I would offer you a few thoughts for those times, if they come, when you're having trouble or when you're struggling in the faith, struggling with persevering, with continuing on in the faith, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, as verse 23 says. And so, when you're struggling in this regard, I would say, first of all, pray. Join with the disciples. They said to Jesus, Luke 17, 5, Lord, increase our faith. Faith is something that can ebb and flow. And again, it's, it's ultimately Christ who is our only hope. It's not, your only hope is you hanging on. Your only hope is Christ holding on to you, strengthening you. Join with that man in Mark 9, 24, who cried out, I do believe help my unbelief. Secondly, I would caution you to slow down and seek some counsel. You can talk to a mature Christian, to a pastor. You can seek counsel from sermons or from from helpful books. Just because you have a difficulty with the Christian faith or with the Bible that you can't seem to figure your way out of yet, it doesn't mean that there aren't helpful answers out there. Church history is a big place, and the Lord has blessed his church with a lot of helpful pastors and teachers over the years who have done some good work and put serious thought into answering difficult questions that you have. And uh, so slow down, pray, and seek some counsel, either live person interaction to interaction or seek some, seek some helpful resources. Or if you need help seeking resources, talk to a mature Christian and maybe they can kind of help point you in a, in a helpful direction. And thirdly, I would caution you to remember that some of the questions that we have here are not questions that God intended to answer for us. We have to limit our questions to the realm of those things which God has revealed. We find in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. We have to understand that, that the Lord does not answer absolutely every question that we may have. Our answers are confined to the scope of a book, and we need to search that book and know it and, and learn it. And fourthly, I would remind you that the Christianity has, has, been proven its, has, has proven itself true, historically, prophetically, and in the experience of those who have come to know Christ. History has been proven true in that it's agreeable to, to world history as we know it. Archaeological evidence and the accounts of ancient history serve as witnesses that testify to the historical veracity of Scripture. And in regard to the prophecies, we can look at the 
prophecies of the Old Testament, and we can see how some of those are fulfilled even in the Old Testament times, how some of them are fulfilled in the New Testament times. We can see God's promises being fulfilled. We can see the, the, the foretellings of the prophets coming to pass in, in history. Obviously, some are yet to be fulfilled, but many have already been fulfilled. And in regard to the experience of believers, just think of the many who have come to know the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, the joy and the peace of sins forgiven and new life granted. Jesus said in John seven seventeen that if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. The, the multitude of witnesses who have come to know Christ and seen their hearts and lives transformed are evidence of the truth of the gospel. And, and fifthly, I would remind you, as J.C. Ryle once said, the difficulties of faith are great, but depend upon it. They are nothing compared to the difficulties of infidelity. If you turn your back on Christ, you're turning away from everything that is solid. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. There is no hope in this life. There's no hope for eternity. You are casting yourself out on a situation in which you have no moral absolutes, no guiding principles for your life, and you need to you need to think about that. There may be some things that we don't have all figured out, but if you turn your back on Christ, you're turning away from everything that is solid in this life. In his later years, uh, J. Gresham Machen looked back on his struggles with faith as a young man, and he, he wrote this. He said, The question is not merely whether we can rest in our faith, but whether we can rest in the doubt that is the necessary alternative of faith. We pass sometimes through periods of very low spiritual vitality. The wonderful gospel, which formerly seemed to be so glorious, comes to seem almost like an idle tale. Hosts of objections arise in our minds. The whole unseen world recedes in the dim distance, and we think for a moment that we have relinquished the Christian hope. My mother spoke to me in those dark hours when the lamp burned dim, when I thought that my faith was gone and shipwreck had been made of my soul. Christ, she used to say, keeps firmer hold on us than we keep on him. My mother's word meant that salvation by faith does not mean that we are saved because we keep ourselves at every moment in an ideally perfect attitude of confidence in Christ No, we are saved because having once been united to Christ by faith, we are his forever. And he went on to say, Calvinism is a very comforting doctrine indeed. Without its comfort, I think I should have perished long ago in the castle of giant despair. So beloved, the point is, the gospel of Christ is a glorious hope. There is nothing else in all the world that is like it. Christ has died to reconcile you to God, to present you holy, blameless, and without reproach before him. Therefore, continue in this faith, firmly established, not moved away from the hope, the confident expectation of this gospel. Please pray with me. Our Father, we know that in ourselves we are weak, 
that in ourselves, left to ourselves, all of us would inevitably fall. But Father, we pray that you would strengthen us so that we would keep steadfast in this faith, that we would keep a hold of this glorious hope that is ours in Christ, that you would hold on to us so that we likewise may hold on to you. Lord, we ask that you would build us up. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we uh, would be those who can, who can point those who are, who are drifting away back to Christ, back to, uh, back to hope and faith in him. We pray that we would always be ready to give an answer to those who ask us for the reason of our hope. Lord, we, we praise you for uh, the great difference that Christ has made in our lives by turning us from being alienated and hostile to you to now being reconciled to you. We pray that you bless us and help us. Let us serve you this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.